Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for listening to The Next Track. And by the way, if you're listening to us in a web browser, be sure to subscribe to us so you can listen to us more easily in a podcast app and never miss a future episode. But no matter how you're listening, we appreciate it. Today, we welcome back Chris Conacher, a good friend of the show and the proprietor of the ComputerAudioFile.com website, where hi-fi and high-tech converge. Chris, thanks for coming aboard. It's great, as always, to have you. Great to be here, guys. It's always a pleasure. Chris, you took a trip recently, didn't you? Oh, yes. A long, strange trip. <laughs> <laughs> Most of it not related to anything to do with audio, but, you know, I rescued a dog, got caught in an avalanche, and drove home. So, you know, it was... <laughs> CES 2017, like no other. <laughs> yeah, you, you actually, you've, you've written an article on your website, Computer Audio File, about your long, strange trip, and I'll link to it, because it is quite a long, strange trip. <laughs> Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, right? Oh, it definitely is, yeah. CES didn't go as planned, but, you know, so be it. I'm back, and back on... So uh, all things computer audio. So we wanted to talk to you about CES, which is the Computer Electronics Show, which is held in Las Vegas every year in January. Now, I've never been to the CES, but as a technology journalist, I hear the war stories of my colleagues who go there and walk dozens of miles through these halls of electronic stuff. And you just went for the audio part, but there's all sorts of, there's TVs and computers and there's wearables and there's smart home devices and everything. It, it's massive, isn't it? Yeah, so I hate to steal a, a line from Leo Laporte, but if it's got a chip in it, it's there. Um, <laughs> you know, so I, you know, I mainly go for the audio stuff that's over at the Venetian, but this year I went to the convention center twice where the main show is. And, you know, there was some good stuff over there too. I, in a way, I love it, but I hate it because it's just, it's gigantic and you walk miles and miles every day. And I mean, talk about first world problems. I'm, complaining about being in all this new technology and meeting some fun people and stuff like that. So it's CES isn't as bad as a lot of people say it is. Well, it isn't as bad for you because you're focused on audio, which is a little bit less expansive. A lot of my colleagues are, are you know, writing more broadly about technology, computers and everything that connects to computers. And the only audio they generally look at is, is headphones. They have to cover everything from smart refrigerators to, you know, fitness trackers, whereas you're, you're, you've got more of a focus. Yes, yes. Ouch. I wouldn't want to cover everything. But I did sit in a really cool massaging chair this time. My friend talked me into it. And, <laughs> oh, that was beautiful. Except it cost $8,000. So I just moved right on. One of my Macworld colleagues tried that, too, and, and tweeted a picture of her in the chair. And she looked extremely relaxed. <laughs> they are great. But the price is just ouch. Yeah. So so how many times have you been to CES? Oh, let's see. 2008, I believe, or nine was my first year. And I've been back every year since. And how does this year's edition compare with previous years as far as audio is concerned? Yeah, as far as audio is concerned, this was an interesting year. And I think many of us feel like it'll be the last year for the high-end audiophile piece that's at the Venetian. Um, last year, a lot of manufacturers said, we're not doing it again, and they didn't show up this year. And this year, more manufacturers are saying, you know, we spent $100,000, and it just wasn't what it used to be. What sort of audio companies have decided not to show up? I'm not sure I understand what their problem with going there is. Yeah, so for people who aren't familiar, <clears throat> there's the main convention center, which has probably the most famous names. Like this year, I ran into Klipsch 
And there's like Samsung, Sony, all those people are at the convention center. And then over at the Venetian is where some of the more high-end audiophile manufacturers are. Air Acoustics, Martin Logan, Constellation Audio, you know, stuff that's extremely on the extreme high end. So, so there is a segregation between the sort of standard audio and, and the, the audiophile stuff? Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's kind of, it's, it serves a good purpose because if you want to really listen to something that, you know, they have a suite set up in the Venetian, each manufacturer does, where it's a quieter listening room. It's not a show floor. Um, so they're active displays versus static displays. Um, but the piece over in the Venetian this year, in between rooms, there was like Serta mattresses. <laughs> there was AARP had a room, you know, right next to high-end audio. So it was a kind of a shadow of its former self. And but wait, these, these, these aren't consumer electronic brands. Were they just there because the demographic is that of old people who need mattresses? So also amongst them is like, Cisco switches and routers. There's all kinds of stuff. The kind of the funny ones are AARP and Serta mattresses, which make no sense. Um, I don't know why those ones were there specifically, but it kind of fills a space because if you walk down the hall and there's nobody showing, you're kind of like, oh, this is a ghost town. It was anyway. But I see kind of two reasons for it. The Munich high end trade show, which happens in May every year, is has become the biggest high end audio trade show in the world. And most people are going to that to conduct business. So less people are going to CES. And the price to do CES is not getting cheaper. So, I mean, to carry your stuff, you know, a manufacturer brings a couple amplifiers and speakers. And to get that up to the 28th floor, the Venetian will charge you $5,000. I mean, <laughs> and then to bring it back down, it'll be $5,000. Wow. Okay. You can't bring it yourself, of course. That would just be, you know, right. absurd. Well, because so, of the union rules. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, like a one manufacturer I talked to said, we spent $100,000 this year. And what did we get? Probably not much. We're going to have to sell a million dollars worth of components to make up that cost. And is it going to happen? Probably not. They don't even get exposure so much at CES for that kind of investment. I mean, the tech press may not even cover that sort of stuff. Yes, exactly. Most of the mainstream doesn't cover it. And it's it's kind of like they go there to meet new dealers and new distributors and it would be great if there was press, but, you know, there just isn't. Because, I mean, going back and forth between the Venetian and the convention center during CES can take half an hour. Uh, so it's really short distance, but it takes forever because there's so many people. So so you mentioned the Munich show. I, I'm, I think you've written about going there in the past. Have you been there several times? I've been there twice and I won't miss it again. It's Good. like Disney World yeah. for adults who like audio. It is absolutely awesome. It's High-end, mid-end, low-end, it's everything audio. It's fabulous. Okay, so we, we'll invite you back in May to talk about that. That'll be interesting. So you're pretty bearish on CES this year. What wasn't there that could have been, and what did you see that was really interesting? What stood out for you? Yeah, so let's start with the uh, negatives. There wasn't a lot of manufacturers there. So in the past, people like Peachtree Audio, Constellation Audio, Air Acoustics, you know, main high-end high brands, uh, didn't have rooms. Some of them had, uh, well, let me, I take that back. Constellation had a room, but much scaled down. Uh, but a lot of people didn't have rooms. They just had representatives show up to kind of meet with people. And big companies like Macintosh Audio just had a static display. You walked in and, you know, here's a couple of our new products. For, in previous years, it was huge active displays. You could listen to anything you wanted. So, you know, just kind of, eh, so-so. Um, but the cool stuff which I think a lot of 
the listeners of this podcast will be into is there was more talk about music. Do, do you mean more about music and less about hardware? I would say yes. The most exciting okay. things were about music. Um, and at least to me, that's awesome. I mean, that's why I get into all this stuff. Yeah, because it's easy to get overwhelmed by the gear and forget that it is about music. In your article on Computer Audiophile, you've got lots of photos and there's some very attractive gear, but it's true that it is the mu it's because of the music that we're all doing this. Yeah, you know, I look at the gear as just a tool. Uh, whatever that is, get me my audio as, as good as it can sound. And it's kind of a, a conundrum, unfortunately, because when I publish pictures of pretty audiophile gear, that gets hits like there's no tomorrow, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I like to look at some of it too, but you know, uh, it's, it's not why I'm into this. So music was a big thing. DEG had a press conference, uh, on the first day that was all about high resolution audio. And I couldn't help but think to back to Neil Young and Pono saying, you know, oh, this is the year for high resolution audio. And eh, it really wasn't, you know, uh, but that when you look at Pono, that's a company run by Neil Young, who is an artist. He's not a businessman. So, and nobody tells Neil Young what to do. Uh, so he made some steps along the way that I will say set them back quite a bit. And maybe it was a little too early, but now all the, all the major record labels are getting on board and even more streaming services are on board. So like Lucian Grange, chairman and chief executive of Universal Music. I don't know that there's anyone bigger in the music industry than him. He was there and he, he doesn't just show up if it's a, if it's not going to be a big deal. Granted, he was texting the whole time on his phone, but he was there to support, you know, other people from the label saying, we're into high res, this is what we're going to do. So to me, that was a big sign that, okay, these guys are finally going to do it. Well, what are they going to do? They are all going to push high resolution as, okay, first, probably more of their catalogs going to be available in high resolution and streaming high resolution. Pandora did all but say they were going to do high resolution streaming. Their CTO was there saying, you know, high res has the potential to engage millions of people and, you know, all of this and that. So he did everything except say they were doing it. I'll say, yeah, they're going to do it. Uh, Napster announced they're going to stream high resolution. Does Napster still exist? Well, I think Napster started streaming high resolution in the late 90s for free. <laughs> yeah. OK, but that's I mean, I mean, today's Napster. Are they still relevant? Rhapsody, I believe, purchased Napster and then took the Napster name. Okay. So still relevant. Yeah, I, I had never used the service forever, you know, so. Has Pandora said anything about expanding? Uh, as far as I know, there have been, what, the U.S., Canada, maybe Australia? Good question. Don't know. They actually laid a bunch of people off recently. They announced they were going to have some layoffs. So if they're going to expand, it'll be at the expense of uh, these layoffs that they're doing. So uh, I've always been surprised that they haven't tried to expand. And, and it could just be about licensing that the way that they approach streaming being differently from the sort of a la carte streaming of the other companies means that the licensing is more complicated and they don't want to bother. But I've always heard so many people, including you, Doug, who've said how great Pandora is. And I've always wanted to try it. And I could try it with a VPN, but it's just too much of a headache. And I find it really disappointing that they haven't made any attempt to break out of their existing market. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think it all comes down to uh, law firms that uh, say they're record labels. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I mean, that's what all record labels are. It's just a bunch of lawyers. And yeah. it's nothing but a headache to do anything. 
So I think that's what it all comes down to. Pandora would probably love to be global, but they're just not. It is an awesome service. Uh, I love it. And, you know, the high-risk push from Pandora could be uh, we have a sinking ship. We have to do something. And high-res is something. Who knows? Um, but, you know, as I wrote in an email to you uh, last week, I don't know that any of this push is consumer-driven, yeah. unfortunately. You know, um, I think put anybody down in a chair with a great system and say, here's the high-resolution version and here's a standard version that you've been listening to for years and tell me the difference. And I don't know that people could say, here's the difference. You know, it's it's just different. It's kind of like there was a TV at CES this year that was 8K. And do we need 8K TVs? I don't think so. You know, is it just because they want to be able to market streaming audio as high res because it sounds like something that will be, you know, beneficial or it has a, as a benefit for the consumer? Yeah, I think so. They did mention, you know, there was standard definition TV, then there was HD TV. And so if we say there's high resolution audio, people will say, I remember the difference between standard definition TV and HD TV. This has got to be like that. And that was night and day. But what's interesting is that with TV, you can see the difference. And the difference in audio is that you have so many more subjective elements that are involved in hearing than you do with video, where it's the pixels there, you can see it or you can't see it because it's too small. In audio, I mean, as you said, you put two people in a chair, it, it's pretty tough for them to tell the difference. And and you're the guy who runs the computer audio file website who writes about this stuff all the time. I'll put a link in the show notes to an episode you did a few months ago talking about high resolution audio. You are far from being a herald for the success of high resolution in the consumer marketplace. Yeah, yeah. I would, you know, I, overall, I could leave high resolution and just go for better sounding recordings. You know, it's yep. if it was CD quality and it sounded, you know, if, if if it was done very well in the studio and mastered very well, I'd be totally fine with that. So, you know, high resolution is what it is. But the, I, I will say one cool thing about high resolution, uh, the release of it is it has got some record labels to remaster albums and those remasters sound good. They could have yeah. released it in standard resolution and it would sound just as good. So the extra commercial value of selling something more expensive in high resolution has prodded them into making some of these old recordings sound better. And for that alone, it's probably worth it. Exactly. Yep. Totally. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see. I have a feeling Spotify will do high resolution as well. And what about Apple? Okay. So very good question. If you, I wrote an article it may be around five years ago now where I said Apple will not do high resolution audio in the next five years. And I took some heat for it, but I believed it and I still believe it. But Apple and high resolution, I look at it. So five years ago, Apple kind of had all the cards in there. You know, they made the decisions on what they were going to do because they had the download store and that was the place where everybody bought music. Now, there's Spotify, you know, I, I, I'll say title, given that it doesn't have that many people, but there's numerous other outlets for people to get music. And Apple's just one player in the game. So if the record label says, you know, we want you to do high resolution, and especially we want you to do MQA, which we'll, you know, get into in a little bit, I think Apple's going to have to say, okay, otherwise get left behind. 
they don't have the pull they used to have. Right. And and you said before the show when we were talking about this, you don't expect them to start going into lossless. You expect them to jump to high resolution directly. Yeah, that, I, I do. I think uh, if anything, they'll jump into MQA because of the file size. And, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. It probably makes more sense. And if the record label saying we're offering you MQA, take it or leave it. I think their their hands may be tied. My thought is that Apple understands that the that there's very little use of going either to lossless or high resolution because the majority of people are listening on portable devices where it won't make a difference with cheap earbuds and cheap headphones or on, you know, Bluetooth speakers and all that and that it won't make a difference. Uh, the only reason that I could see Apple doing this is because they have to basically what you're saying. If the rest of the market does, Apple can't be seen as a laggard. Now, when a record label submits their audio files to Apple, they submit high resolution files. They submit 2496 FLAC files. So Apple has that, at least in recent years. The problem is going further into the back catalog where they don't. So uh, I don't know how long it's been that Apple has been requiring these high resolution files. Before that, it was just plain CD quality lossless. They would be able to generate high resolution files from their existing master library for things that go back a number of years, but they would have a huge amount of back catalog where they wouldn't have high resolution. And I'm, I'm pretty sure this is going to be the case with any of these streaming services, isn't it? They're not going to have the high resolution files unless the labels can make them available. And the last thing we want is them to just upsample CD quality files to make them high resolution on paper, but not sound any different. Yes, totally. So. You, you raise an interesting point. Apple does have, say, the 2496 uh, masters that they requested from labels so they could make the mastered for iTunes and stuff like that. And when you look at that from an artist perspective or a label perspective, that's a bad thing because the label delivers one thing and Apple produces another thing out of that. So it may sound different than what was delivered. So Apple made the decision on how that should sound. And if you're an artist or a producer or a mastering engineer, that's not cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Target doesn't get to decide what my shirt looks like if I sell it there. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to modify that a little bit. Apple gives tools to record labels so they can do the conversion themselves to the iTunes, to the master for iTunes format so they can hear how it sounds. And Apple clearly instructs them do this and then tweak your original file until it sounds correctly when we've done this. Now, my guess is that most labels don't that they just don't want to spend the time, that they just give these high resolution files. But the, the labels do have the option of basically mastering that 2496 file so it sounds the way they want as a mastered for iTunes file. Yes, yes. And I think you're 100% right. The labels just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. There's some crazy supply chain stuff going on. Uh, it, I, I talked to people at CES this year about it, and you would think the music delivered to some of the online sites for sale had a decent supply chain and there's nobody in the middle making changes. And oh my gosh, it's crazy. And this has been a problem for years. This isn't new and, and they really do need to control this. So you mentioned MQA and you think this might be a big deal, but you said before the show, it won't be a big deal for consumers. And I think what you mean is that MQA would be a tool that these record labels will use to give audio files to the companies who are streaming the music that we'll then listen to. W what exactly is MQA? What does it stand for? How does it work? So that in itself is a humongous discussion that is impossible. Uh, <laughs> I've been through panels. I've moderated <laughs> panels. 
uh, you know, with the people who created this, it's very hard. But so it's master quality authenticated. It's an end to end process that seeks to one, make the audio sound better and two make the file sizes uh, much smaller for high resolution audio. So it, you know, if I said it's not going to be a big deal for consumers, maybe I misspoke. It, it will be big for them because they're going to be receiving it as the audio they're playing. Right, but consumers won't be buying these files necessarily or they, they won't know about it. It'll be transparent to them or you think it will be. They will. So in title okay. now, there's a new tab called Masters and that's all MQA music. I, I'm sure in the long run, say if somebody like Spotify goes to MQA and that's all they have, it'll just be all transparent. We have MQA and that's just what it is uh, and people won't care. Um, but MQA, uh, you know, seeks to make the audio sound better and in smaller file sizes. So the reason why I think that's going to be a big deal is because the record labels need to take the power back. They gave up all their power when they said iTunes. Sure. You can start selling singles. You can do this. You can do that. So now if they go MQA, they're not giving up the crown jewels anymore. So their master is no longer for sale. They have an MQA version that's for sale. And whether that sounds better or not, you know, so be it, you decide. Um, and they now have like a single deliverable to everybody. Here's the one file that's for sale, you know, I, whether it's Lady Gaga or Miles Davis, here's the one file that iTunes is gonna sell, Spotify's gonna stream, Apple's gonna stream, everybody's gonna stream, and this is the standard. And if the label says this is what we're doing, you know, if you're going to sell it, what are you going to say? No. OK, then just don't sell it. And this is kind of a big deal, too, because all the labels so far, Warner Music's on board. But give it weeks and all the big labels will be on board with this. As an artist, I think I like that because that means I've recorded something and there is a canonical recording of it. And that's what everybody is going to hear. So if if I'm the artist or the producer and I can oversee the um the the making of this mqa um media then i can be assured that everybody is going to hear exactly what i wanted them to hear would isn't that right yes yes that's 100 percent true and what's kind of cool about it too is when you play an mqa file through an mqa dac a light will illuminate on the dac saying this is mqa so if something's been done to the file it will not light up. If somebody's upsampled it and saying, yeah, we want to sell a different version of it, it doesn't light up. So it's not like the chain of custody, provenance, end-to-end -end type of thing. Now, we won't go into the nitty gritty of MQA. It's some sort of odd type of compression. It has DRM. There are a lot of complications. But one thing that I understand is that, as you said, you need an MQA DAC. So how are people going to play this back if they have to buy new hardware, which presumably won't be cheap. Yeah, very good question. So MQA was announced probably two years ago. And from day one, pretty much, they said, yeah, you're going to need MQA hardware. There was a little wavering back a long time ago, but now it's, okay, MQA hardware. And now with the launch of Tidal releasing, Tidal claims 30,000 MQA tracks. Uh, there's software decoding. So think of it as a couple of stages in MQA decoding. And Title and other software apps can do, I would say, 90% of the decoding. And if you have hardware, that'll do the final rendering is what it's called. So to get the complete experience, you would need software and hardware or just hardware that does it. Uh, 
but to get 90% of it, you can just use hardware. I mean, just use software like Titles app. So this would obviously be a problem for Apple adopting this because one of the reasons that they focus on AAC is that this can be decoded using hardware. So basically there's a bit of a chip in an iPhone that can decode the AAC files. And this makes battery life an awful lot better than if it's software decoding. So imagine if they have to build MQA into the software on the iPhone, and in order for people to listen to these files, they lose, let's say, an hour or two of battery life a day. That won't pass. No. So there will definitely be software and hardware chips for phones. No question. Right. But we're talking about an installed base of a half a billion iPhones. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Understood. Yeah, totally. Who knows if it'll be an hour? I, I don't know. But I, I definitely hear what you're saying. That would definitely be an issue. So right now, the title app on iPhone and Android does not do software decoding. So if you stream MQA, you get the undecoded version. If you stream with the desktop app for title, you can decode it. Okay. Now, another problem that would come into play is that of interoperability. When Steve Jobs famously threatened the record labels saying, we got to get rid of DRM, one of the reasons for this was a European Commission antitrust investigation pointing out that if you bought DRM'd music from one vendor, you couldn't play it on another device. And the investigation was called off because Apple brought out the music without DRM and all the other companies followed. But if MQA has DRM, this will reignite this whole problem. I think when you look at defining DRM, it has a number of definitions and subparts and pieces all over the place. And when I think of DRM, I don't think MQA is DRM. MQA will play on any device that can play a FLAC file. And I'm sure they can do an AAC or a wave or whatever you want. It'll play. It just won't decode to its full quality. So versus, you know, back in the day, you buy a file from from Walmart. They did it too, but from Microsoft, and then they shut down their servers and you can't listen to it anymore. Exactly. Right. Currently, it's not like that at all. So it will play. It just won't give you the full effect of MQA. Okay. And, and in your article, you use a, an interesting example. You compare it to hybrid SACDs where you have two layers. One is a CD and one is a super audio CD. And if you have a CD player, you can listen to the CD. If you have a super audio CD player, you can listen to the higher quality, but you're not limited. You don't need to have that SACD player to listen to the disc. Exactly. And I kind of look at it also as like DTS or Dolby for video. If you don't have those decoders, okay, you won't get Atmos or what you won't you won't get what they deliver, but you can still listen and watch. So that's kind of what MQA is delivering. And granted, there are a lot of people that think you know this MQA is a solution looking for a problem, but you know I, I guess we'll see. And I think it doesn't matter what anybody thinks if the record labels want to do it, they're going to do it. So MQA stands for, what was it again? Master Quality Authenticated. Right. And it was developed by a company called Meridian, which is a hardware manufacturer, right? So that, you could say yes. So it was developed by Bob Stewart and Peter Craven, who worked at Meridian and founded Meridian. They have since, or Bob has since split MQA off from Meridian to its own company. And I believe Bob has left Meridian and is now doing MQA only which I think is a very good move to yeah. tie it to a hardware manufacturer. That just gave everybody kind of a bad taste. We'll have to keep our eyes open and our ears open for this. You think this is going to happen soon? I do. I do, especially with Warner and Title already doing it. 
I think the others are just going to be like dominoes. And so this means that MQA would probably get bought out by someone. Uh, no, it's kind of like DTS and Dolby don't get bought out. It, they just offer a technology for a licensing fee. So MQA is just a technology company saying, here's our tools, do what you want with it. And sure, they could get bought out, but, you know, I mean, of course, anything's possible, right? For a big enough check, yeah. anybody yeah. can get bought out. Okay, let's just finish. What are the three most interesting audio devices or gadgets that you saw at the CES? Oh, yes, yes. So probably the favorite booth I accidentally stumbled into was the very first day. I stumbled into Klipsch Audio's booth at the main convention center. And Klipsch is kind of nostalgic for me. One of my first pair of speakers was Klipsch KG 5.5s. I loved those things. And then the brand kind of just went away for me and I think a lot of people. But now they're offering really cool products at reasonable prices. Like right next to me now, I have a thing called Klipsch The 3, which is like a desktop speaker. Looks kind of like what Sonos would do. Uh, but it also looks really, really cool. It's like a heritage series. It's got real physical knobs on there that you twist and flip. And so Klipsch really impressed me with what they have for reasonable prices. Really cool stuff. So I recommend everyone check that out. I mean, this thing next to me, I think is 400 bucks or so, and it sounds just awesome. So in the world of high end, $400 is less than the tax you pay for cables. So great stuff. <laughs> you know, just as an aside, it's funny. A few weeks ago, Doug and I were chatting and I mentioned that I used to work for, that I worked for Sansui for a year. I worked in their warehouse moving boxes around and we went on to eBay and stuff and we found these oh, old yeah. Sansui receivers with like... 800 dials and gauges and everything. Oh, they were and awesome. we both said, you know, I really want to buy one of those yeah. just because it's like all those buttons and dials, they're fun. They really are. Uh, we really got a bad case of retro techno lust going <laughs> at that day. So have you guys read the book, The Revenge of Analog? It's funny you should mention that. Yeah, we're interviewing David Saxon in a couple of weeks. Terrific. Awesome book. Yeah. And it totally that. So, okay. So another thing at CES that I thought was really, really cool uh, is kind of related to MQA and hardware, is the AudioQuest Dragonfly DAC. That is going to, I won't say decode MQA, it'll render MQA. So if you have software that decodes it, the Dragonfly DAC will do the final rendering stage. So you'll get the full 100% MQA experience with a DAC that's $100, $149. It's, it's really, really cool. So MQA for the masses uh, with that device. And I think I mentioned that device on another podcast. And we talked about DAX. Yeah, you, that was one of your Yeah, picks. yeah. I, I'm not a shill for them. I just think that's a great device for not too much money and goes a long way. So that was that was another really, really cool feature. And one more. How prominent was vinyl at this year's CES? You just mentioned the Revenge of Analog. People keep talking about how vinyl is selling so much better than since whenever year, but it's still just a blip, isn't it? Was it very present at CES? Uh, you know... It was probably as present as it is at the high-end spot in the Venetian. I didn't see a single record at the convention center. But, you know, at the Venetian, of course, there's people that spin vinyl on the high-end systems. And, you know, that's just kind of how it is. But I, I wouldn't say you could tell any sort of trends or anything. And especially looking at high-end, you can never tell trends. But that kind of brings up one more thing I will say is cool. The DEG, Digital Entertainment Group, I believe, uh, sponsored a high-resolution booth, high-resolution digital audio booth at the convention center. Traditionally, this is at the Venetian in the basement where we're kind of preaching to the choir. 
bringing it over to the convention center, I thought was really cool because you have, I'll call them civilians who don't know what high resolution is, can now walk into a booth that's all about high resolution. There was even like a mastering uh, facility set up there with uh, monitor speakers and a digital audio workstation so they could see how it works and then listen to high resolution. So I thought it was great outreach to introduce people to high resolution. And you know, even if they walk away saying, I can't hear a difference, at least they know what it is now. So it was a good step. Okay, so you think this is gonna be the year of high resolution on the desktop? I do, I do. Well, we'll have to check back next year and see if this actually comes true, but we definitely wanna hear from you after you go to the show in Munich in May. Um, because if it is a bigger show, that means there's going to be more new things that are presented there. Yeah, Munich show, that is now where people are announcing new products. Okay, Chris, thanks for joining us once again, and we look forward to having you very soon. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Chris Conacher's website is computeraudiophile.com, and his Twitter handle is audiophilestyle. And now we have come to the part of the program where we present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to this week? This week, I've been listening to a record that I've had and been listening to for almost 40 years now. It's seconds out. It's the live album from Genesis. It was released in 1977. I discovered Genesis in 1976, where I first heard the two albums that came out, one early that year and one later that year, A Trick of the Tale and Wind and Wuthering. These were the first Genesis albums post-Peter Gabriel, who had left after The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. And they are full of really interesting music. Some of it's a bit schmaltzy, but some of the songs have a lot of energy. And so the Seconds Out live album, a, a double live album, was a document of the 1977 Genesis tour and contained a number of songs from those two albums from their current album that year. And then there were three, which was after Steve Hackett left, and a few oldies and, and goodies, such as Supper's Ready, which was 24 minutes long. It's the first time they had released a recording of that live. Doug, what is the most boring part of a rock concert for you? Uh, my drummer friends are going to hate me. The drum solo. Exactly. And Genesis was working with a new drummer, Chester Thompson, who was just amazing. He changed the sound of the band. Remember, Phil Collins had been the band's drummer before he became the lead singer. And Chester Thompson came in with some of the most creative, jazzy rock ways of playing the drums, that it was just awesome hearing him play the drums. And Seconds Out, while it's got some great songs, what really stands out is the quality of the drumming on it. And, and it's really, it's probably a drummer's album. It's probably an album that drummers like to listen to. So I've been listening to this this week, along with the two albums, Trick of the Tail and, and Wind and Wuthering. And this was really a good period of, of Genesis. I mean, it was great with Peter Gabriel, but very, very different from this sort of mid-70s, early Phil Collins Genesis. Not everyone likes the live albums, wants the studio albums, but I think this is one of the seminal live albums of the 1970s. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week? My next track pick this week is an album by a band called The Bomboras, who do what I guess is called neo-surf music. Some episodes ago, I picked an album by The Ventures, who were real surf music. Well, The Bomboras formed in the mid-90s with the hope of resurrecting that reverby guitar, cheesy Farfisa organ, clicky bass instrumental surf sound. And in my opinion, there is nothing more authentic in their discography as it came from Pier 13, exclamation point. 
If you didn't know any better, you'd swear this stuff was recorded in the 60s and recorded very well, I might add. They obviously revere the original surf sound, but they've been able to incorporate shades of punk and acid rock that weren't really around during the first wave of surf, if you will. It's a really fun listen, and uh, it's great to have on during your next summer barbecue or surf and safari. (laughs) The Bomboras, It Came From Pier 13, is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.